0: Welcome to another episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christiansen, and today we're going to be talking about weight, but maybe not so much weight loss in the traditional way where one size seems to fit all, but much more around the whole space of emotional eating and helping women to maybe feel better about the weight that they are, which is very close. But I'm excited to hear what my guest today is going to say. She is Angela Roth. She is the founder and owner of Shapeshifters Academy. And I know that she's had her own journey from being maybe a very traditional slimming world consultant to somebody who went on her own journey, including an early menopause, and has really brought something new and different to the way in which women approach weight and eating. So, welcome to the show, Angela.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to chatting.
0: I am too. Start a little bit at the beginning with respect to, you know, you worked with as a Slimming World consultant. How did that come about and and what really changed and made you want to leave that space? Well, it, it
1: came about because for years I had battled with my weight and my shape, you know, and I'd gone through all the tried different diets. I would tried also wearing different clothes and hiding it. I would tried kidding myself that I was just meant to be that shape, but I was never really happy. But I bought into the, what you hear all around you, you know, that you just need to find the right plan that works for you. But it was still very much food plan. That's what I was hearing in my head. So a leaflet came through the door. So well I've not tried it before. Let's go and try it. And I did lose weight, lost about four stone with them. And to be honest, I thought that was it. I thought that great, you know, I've done it. That's it now. For the rest of my life, I'm going to be this weight. You know, I'm going to be wearing the clothes that I want to wear, etc. And over the next, actually about 12 years or so, I was a kind of on and off Slimming World member, um, losing weight, putting weight back on, losing weight, convinced in my head that it was because I wasn't following the plan that things were going awry. So eventually, I joined again and the consultant left, not because I joined, I hasten to add, and she. people just said, why don't you do it? You know, you've been here long enough, you know the plan. And uh, so I thought, well, why not? You know, I actually thought in my head that being a consultant would help me to actually stay at the weight that I wanted to be. And I didn't actually get back to the weight I wanted to be, but I got to about within a stone of it. And so I thought, well, being a consultant, you know, I'll have to sort of look after myself. So I joined and followed their training and everything. And it was about two years later when life took a nosedive uh, that I realized I hadn't solved any of my issues at all. I went straight back to my old habits and was standing in front of these lovely ladies hiding the gaining weight with whatever shapewear I could find. And I just felt a total fraud. I thought, how can you do this? How can you stand to helping people lose weight when you're not even doing it yourself? So that's when I started my own journey really, my own research into me. That's what made the difference. I learned about me and how my body works and managed to get to the weight that I wanted to be. And it just I just began to feel that I was selling these ladies short. I could show them how to lose weight. I could tell them recipes. I could talk about, you know, not eating fat and that sort of thing. But none of them or very few of them, I would say, would get to that weight that they wanted to be and stay there. That was what was bothering me, how few people actually stayed at the weight. They could lose the weight, but they couldn't stay there. And I just began to think, no, they've got to understand, like me, we need to understand why we're eating, why we don't keep, you know, what what is it? What makes us put things into our mouths that actually we don't even want to? We don't even want to eat them, but we put them in our mouths and we eat them, and then we feel bad. What is it that makes us do that? And each of us is different. So I I wanted to begin to help people to do that, to actually understand themselves, to care for themselves and to love themselves, because I knew how many of my members did not love themselves.
0: Isn't that a classic story though, Angela? And as you're saying it there, there must be so many of the listeners, and I can feel it too, even though I've always been on the opposite end and too thin, (laughs) but who feel exactly the same, that You've been on a diet, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And I read somewhere that women had been on up to 60 diets in their life and always the same story, you'd lose the weight and you'd come back. So when you talk about that, and feeling like a fraud. I mean, that must have felt terrible for you as well. I ju- it just felt so unauthentic because I...
1: I'm a very sort of straightforward person, you know. I speak. I don't mean I, you know, I speak what I find. I like to tell people happy things, and I like to encourage people. But when you're trying to encourage people to do things that you're not doing, it just felt so bad. At the end of each meeting, every week, I was feeling just really guilty.
0: Yeah, that's a horrible feeling if that's your kind of job as well. That you know, you feel guilty and and there you were. And I mean, were you putting on a lot of weight or were you just getting back all the weight that you'd gained?
1: I was just getting back what I gained really. I must have put on about, I think I must have put on about two and a half stone during that time. But what bothered me as well was that I wasn't the only consultant that that was happening to. And as I began to realize that, and I began to realize that it was endemic actually amongst consultants. There are some absolutely wonderful ladies out there doing a wonderful job. But for a lot of them, they lose sight of their own personal weight loss journey because they haven't understood why they gained weight in the first place.
0: No, I understand that. And I mean, so really what I can hear through this is that it isn't all about recipes and eating less and cutting out fat, that there's something much deeper. Am I on the right track there, Angela?
1: Absolutely. There's a part of us that for an emotional eater... It's actually really fascinating. A lot of emotional eaters are lovely, warm, kind people. They're the sort of people who would do anything for anybody. They'll reach, they'll touch people's hearts because they care. And that's very, very common amongst emotional eaters. They react very, well, they react with their emotions to, to life. You'll, they'll be the sort of person who you'll see crying when they're watching a children's film in the cinema because it touches inside of them. Um, and because of that, they, we develop this coping habit through all sorts of reasons from usually from childhood maybe teenage years the coping mechanism to protect ourselves is centered around food where for somebody else it might be going for a run some people it's actually you know just being rude you know you'll find people snapping at people and it can just be a temper thing but for the emotional eater their coping mechanism is eating in one form or another and the guilt that that builds up um inside of them and it it get, of course, it gets worse and worse. And the more that that happens, the less they like themselves. They will hide behind a sort of jokey. You will often find them joking about themselves first so that nobody else makes that joke. I mean, probably nobody would make that joke but they feel they have to do it. You'll see them, they'll be the person when the photograph, when the camera comes out, they'll be the person that's at the back that only wants their head to show. And they'll be saying things like, oh, no, you go to the front; it's fine, you know. You're, you, you know you're smaller than me. They'll be pushing people into the limelight because they don't want it, or else they will be the person taking the picture. They'll also, which I found very interesting, they'll be the person who, when you're out for a meal and everybody else is choosing, you know, steak in a cream sauce, they will choose maybe, you know, salmon and salad. They'll say no, thank you to the pudding, but when they get home, they will feel so cheated that they'll go and eat a massive bowl of ice cream. But in front of other people, they don't feel that they can eat what they want to eat.
0: You know, that's so sad. And as you said, it you can think of the people that we all know, or maybe that person is us, that we've done those things. But when did you really uncover that you were an emotional eater? Did you always know that, Angela? Or did that really come as you realized that you just weren't losing weight? No,
1: I first realized it. It had started with, I didn't know what I was doing, but it started as a teenager when I was very badly bullied at school. And mum had always said we could save our pocket money if we walked home. It was just like a bit of extra, sorry, bus money. It was a bit of extra pocket money. We could save it. So what I started doing was walking home, but going into the sweet shop and buying chocolate. And really looking back, you'd think, well, why did you do that? People were bullying you and telling you you were fat and yet your answer was to go into the shop to buy chocolate, and of course, Mum wondered why I was gaining weight because she was giving me back lunch with healthy food in. so it, it sort of started then, and I had one sister well I had I come from a big family there's six girls and two boys, but one of my sisters, now I know, was an emotional eater herself, and she used to be I think she was quite pleased that she'd found one sister who would join her in the secret trips to the fish and chip shop or the getting off the bus early and you know as I say, buying buying ice cream or something. And we kind of felt like we were doing something, you know, a bit daring because mom didn't know, but really we were feeding our habit. And sadly, when this sister Helena, when she was in her 40s, she took her own life and, you know, she had struggled for years. It would weight watchers that she had joined and she'd been their woman of the year. She'd been to America on a, you know, all expenses paid trip, Um, but she just kept regaining the weight. And then, losing it, and then regaining it, and nobody ever helped her to, to, to get to the bottom of it and When, when that happened, it was such a, a shock to the whole family. She left you know two teenage daughters behind and, and a husband and But I began to realize that i wasn 't any different. I was doing the same as what she 'd done all those years, and I had got four children by then, and the last thing I wanted to do was find myself in that place so that 's when I really faced the fact that I was an emotional eater. But at that point, I still didn't find the help.
0: No. And when you say that, that's so true. I mean, the whole diet industry is a multi billion dollar industry that is built on people like you and sadly your sister who keep, who don't break the habit and just keep coming back because they make money from that. That's how they keep their subscriptions going because you never ever resolve the deeper issues of why we. Emotionally
1: eat, And I think what's the saddest thing to me is that there are a lot of people who are working in these industries who genuinely actually do care. They want to help. Their heart is to, you know, to reach out and help and some of them have had amazing journeys. You know, they may have lost 10, 12 stone themselves and they may have been able to keep it off. Actually, fundamentally, they aren't emotional eaters. They had a weight issue they may have gained weight maybe when they were at uni maybe through childhood habits that were sort of there from parents but fundamentally they aren't emotional eaters so they haven't actually faced the issue that a lot of the members have faced they've managed to keep their weight off and you know i take my hat off to them and you know i know some of them and they are lovely ladies but what happens is you get a kind of it's sort of you learn to change habits but it's very superficial learning it doesn't help you to understand where those habits come from. So of course, when something happens in life, that floors you. Like for me, well, I sadly lost a brother as well. And and that was a few years later, totally floored me. You know, there I'd been living at this target weight thinking I was fantastic. You know, I'd sorted it all out. But what did I do when life took that dip? Or I went straight back to the chocolate and the ice cream. And nobody had ever helped me to understand why I did that. Where did that come from? What was it inside of me that was seemed determined to destroy the thing I most wanted in life, which was to live a healthy way?
0: Yeah, that's so often the case. I mean, with anybody who has these emotionally based behaviors that unless you resolve the why, the underlying reason. People go back to them, whether you know, we could have replaced your eating conversation with alcohol or anything else. You know, even, and I had, had somebody I knew and she was, she was actually had been bulimic. She did eat, but then she ran like crazy to maintain the weight. So she hadn't resolved, she neither had resolved her issues either. And I, and I remember that very clearly, even though she was a very successful, powerful woman, that underlying emotion wasn't resolved. But from going back to you, Angela, Obviously you're losing two siblings in is huge. What was the real shift beyond that that made you start to address this emotional eating? Was it just them passing away or were there other triggers?
1: I'd gone back to Slimming World after my brother died, it was about probably about a year and a half later. I I still wasn't coping emotionally, but I was very aware of all the weight I'd gained and was very unhappy with it. So over the next few years, that's when I I lost some weight and I, as I say, became a consultant. And then what happened was in in our life, I have um, four children and one of our sons was married young to an apparently, you know, lovely pretty girl who was parents that were telling us how much they loved our son and so on. And then within days of them getting married, we, we lost contact virtually with him. And at that point, I had still thought, I had thought that I had conquered the habits because I'd I'd picked up a few sort of tips along the way I I you know I'd had carrots chopped in the fridge and things like that to go and snack on and and so on but I began to realize we once we realized what had happened with our son and, and discovered that he had been well terribly treated um we basically went in to rescue him when he'd been abandoned and was being blackmailed actually about his little precious, she's she's got a lovely, beautiful little girl. She was six weeks old and um, he was basically being, she was being withheld from him. Um, And he was being told that unless he did what he was told, unless he behaved in the way they wanted him to behave, that he wouldn't see her again. And we discovered it and he couldn't even let us hug him at this point. And I was so horrified and just, you know, just crushed really to think of how he'd been treated. And we ended up with me living half a life in, with him and half a life back at home. And the emotional weight that was on my shoulders at the time, just trying to support him through all of this and help him to go through the courts and so on to see his little girl. That's when the emotional eating came back with an absolute vengeance. And I was using the car journeys to and fro to kid myself that I needed the sugar and the, you know, so it, would be, it would be a packet of crisps, Kit Kat Chunky, and a smoothie. And then maybe stopping at Costa. It was just, and I, ho- I was horrified, absolutely horrified that I was doing this, but I just didn't know how to stop. And that was the absolute trigger because I just thought, you know, you've been doing this now for how many years? And if you carry on doing this, you're never going to be happy. You're always going to be feeling guilty. You're always going to be feeling being, like thinking about food, thinking about your body. It was just interfering with normal life. And uh, I realized. That actually it went right the way back to when I was eleven, and those girls that bullied me. That I'd taken on this belief that I was a second-class citizen, and that I was never going to be making, you know, amount to much. That I was never going to be the popular one. That I was always going to be the one left at the side of the games field. That you know, I had a body to be ashamed of. It went back to that, and it also went back to my first boyfriend, who I thought I was in. Cloud nine, and then he turned to me and he said, Do you know what, Angie? I don't even know why I asked you out. I don't actually normally like fat girls.
0: Oh, gosh. And, and isn't it something like that that can stay with us for so long? And how we can take things like that and they, and we've buried them somewhere because they're not, I mean, now you're obviously sharing it in a story, but you know, how they can sit there and in, work in our subconscious, changing who we think we are. And it says a lot also about our society, doesn't it, in the, in the way we think about bodies. You know, if you're not some sort of, I don't know, skinny mini, shall we say, then you're, yeah, you don't, you somehow have less worth and that feeds into our system as well.
1: It does, yeah. I mean, it, it makes you, it has a, an amazingly powerful effect. I just don't think, I think people who have always been slim have no idea what 's going on in somebody 's life, you know you, you, so often you hear this message i 've got ladies who work, I work with, and they 'll go to the doctors because they're they 're really struggling with depression with self image and the message they 'll get well, just go and lose weight you 'll feel better,
0: you know eat less
1: and move more,
0: and you 'll be fine that doesn 't work, we know that doesn 't work, and it works even less doesn 't it when we 've gone into our menopause because our metabolic systems are not working like that. But it is sadly a very common message that is through our whole society, not just our
1: doctors. Yeah, no, you hear it all the time. I mean, at, at the, when I listen to you know these radio programs and you'll hear, they have some guest speaker coming on and I used to get really cross if it was about teaching and you'd always get somebody saying, oh, teachers have all these holidays. Well, my husband's a teacher and I knew how hard he worked. But the thing that gets me most cross is when you have this supposed health expert who says, well, it's just about, you know, energy in and energy out. That's all you've got to do. Stop eating chocolate, get off your backside and get on and, you know, lose weight. And they say it so glibly and they do not know the damage they're doing to the people who are so desperate to be a healthy weight and they just don't know how to get there because they've no idea why they keep self-sabotaging
0: Now, I was just going to say the self-sabotage is exactly the things that are keeping us, aren't they Angela? they're trapped in habits in well-worn paths of behavior that you can't fully break and I can hear from your story that that it was it could change, but every time there was a you know a traumatic event in your life, it would resurface
1: Yes, because anybody can. Change what they eat, and actually can change superficially their habit when they're feeling strong. And to me, the message that goes out through most sort of weight loss organizations is that we need willpower, and you've just and you'll hear it all the time. Oh, I I just need to get enough willpower. And to me, it's like there are times in our life for all of us. Maybe we've got a wedding coming up, or we're, we're supposed to be having surgery. There's some reason why we need to lose weight, and we put on this like a ski jacket, and we zip it up and we hold ourselves in and we stop ourselves by sheer will from eating chocolate or whatever it is that we like. And we can manage to do it because we've got this focus going, but something happens and the buttons start popping open and the emotions that we've been trapping inside of us come tumbling out. And with them, it doesn't just mean we eat a piece of chocolate, it actually means we go and eat three bars of chocolate. Because we have so deprived ourselves that our body is telling us, in fact, I mean, it's to do with our training of our brain for so long that we've trained our brain that when we need comfort, when we're feeling depressed, it's chocolate that we need. So our brain actually believes that it's chocolate that's going to help us. So we've on this diet, we've strapped ourselves in and we've been telling our brain, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. I'm not going to eat chocolate. And managed to do it for, you might even have done it for six months. But suddenly, the world falls apart and everything just goes out of the window. And because you haven't dealt with the reason why you were eating the chocolate, it hits you like a, a train coming full force.
0: Yeah, it's an addiction. And it's an emotionally-based behavior. It's got nothing to do with calories in and calories out at all. But Angela, for you, obviously, something changed. And you were able to change lanes, so to speak, in this What happened for you to leave that slimming world culture and take a very different path around your emotional eating?
1: I think that the absolute sort of light bulb moment for me was when I sat down and I looked back at those girls and I took myself back to that place and the pain I'd felt. And I thought, do you know what? I have no idea why they said those things to me. I don't know why that boyfriend said those things to me, but I do know that there will have been a reason. It will have come from something in their past. Maybe they were unhappy at home. Maybe they were getting bullied. Maybe their parents weren't happy with them. For what I don't know. And I'll never know what the reason is that they said those things. But what I do know is they had no right to say them. And that actually, I do not need to let them color me or my life anymore. That actually, I can just choose to forgive them. I can actually just release that, let them go. I'll never understand it. But Actually, what I can do is stop it affecting my future. So I can't change the past, but I can choose not to let the past affect the future. So he went back there and I just decided I was going to forgive them and let go of it and just decide that actually I had the right to be the person that I was always meant to be, that I was created to be, that's my destiny. And nobody in this world has the right to stop that. They didn't have the right to make me feel so bad about my body what I could do is take hold of it and even just doing that I began to start to love myself in a different way and I began to start to look at my the good things about me and some people would perhaps, when the actual fact what happens is for when you're struggling with those things it's very difficult to see any good points in you and you'll often find people give you a compliment even say about a dress you're wearing and you'll be like oh, yeah, this, this old thing. Yes, I got it in a charity shop. You know, or, oh, it was my sister's. It was my hand-me-down. You, don't, you can't accept compliments. And so I realized that that's what had been happening all my life. And yet, when I sat down and I started to think about me and who I am and what my mission in life is, what my passions are in life, I just began to accept those things. And it was a really scary thing to do because you can feel a bit well, are you being big headed then if you think that you're a kind person, for example? But I knew that unless I started loving me for who I am, I would never be able to change anything. So I started to go on that journey of just accepting that I have a right to be the person I was born to be and that nobody has the right to take it from me.
0: No. I agree. But how, I mean, did you get support to do this? Or did you actually just decide to, to walk on this path yourself with the support of books or groups? It was like
1: I didn't read anything and I didn't, there was nobody around me that was doing that. I do have a faith and that did help. I think it just, I've just began to realize that The only person that could do this was me. I had to do the changing. I could, you know, you see motivational quotes and they would help if I just took a little bit of time and thought about it. But the biggest thing that helped me and the thing that's like my mantra now, I can't change the past, but I can change how the past affects the future. And that's what I kept saying to myself. And so even at the difficult times, even like say with my sister dying, there was nothing I could do to change that. I could be an auntie to her daughters that would give them what a mother might have given them. And, you know, I could just look forward and change the effect of the past on my life. That was what really held it for me. And I just had to t- keep hold of that through, you know, through any other sort of times as, as there have been. And then I began to believe that if that was happening for me, how many other more women out there needed to hear that message for themselves too? So I did start to share it within the Slimming World groups. I was still running them at the time. And that gave me an enormous sense of purpose. And it did give me a sort of motivation, really, to keep working on myself and to keep asking myself the questions and making different choices in my life.
0: Yes. How long did it take before you noticed that your emotional eating, I presume, was dialing down? What happened, I think, was that about
1: 18 months after we found our son, things were beginning to improve. The courts had given him joint custody, which was a very, which is actually still a shocking statistic. Only about 8% of men get this. So that was sort of, you know, things were looking up and my eating was under control. But it wasn't until our eldest son, and it was about that autumn, so it would have been about 18 months after our son, our other son, we discovered him. Our eldest son was involved in an incident in London and ended up being arrested and charged with an offence that he hadn't committed. And it was actually a racially aggravated offence, which I'm sure you can imagine in, in, in this day, that could have had serious consequences on him. And for the next 12 months after that, we were also then supporting him while he was fighting to clear his name. And on the day that he did clear his name and the judge was just he just threw it out and he awarded us you know, some damages because of what had happened. I suddenly looked back over the year and I realized that none of those habits had come back and that even through this time,
0: which was horrible, I hadn't put any weight on. Amazing. Amazing. So, so really, it wasn't like you know, suddenly wasn't it. It Probably listening to you talk, Angela. it sounds like it was, you know, just something that happened and you let go of the need to be in that space, that you had a different inner strength, if I'd describe it like that.
1: I'm absolutely sure that it's, I'd come to the point where I actually loved myself enough to want to care about myself, that the images that I carried with me for so long, that I was unlovable. Because that's what happened when that boyfriend said that to me, It was like, actually, you're too fat to be lovable. And even though I was now happily married and got four children, that was still in the back of my head, that lack of belief that ultimately I was lovable. And so, But something had changed, and I began to realize that the first person that needs to love me is me. If we don't love ourselves, we can't love other people. We can't live the life that we're called to live. And being able to love myself for who I actually am and not having to pretend to be somebody else. And then it moved into loving my body and that drive to understand so that when things, the early menopause, for example, when weight can be a real issue during that time. But I'd, I think it had already sunk into me that actually the important thing was to keep loving myself enough to spend time understanding what was happening so that I could make sure I was doing the right thing for my body and helping my body to live in the way I wanted it to, that makes sense.
0: That uh, makes total sense to me that really it doesn't become as complicated as dieting and depriving yourself. And it's much deeper, isn't it? It really is, as you said, that sense of loving yourself, the self-love, realizing that you're important and that people love you and you, know, you are able to be loved. That's huge. And yet around you, you still, like you said, at that time, you had a husband and beautiful children and a family. Yet somehow that missing link between you loving yourself and what was evident really from around you wasn't complete. It was like you, maybe can, I can say you almost like closed a circle because they, they loved you. And, and then now, you know you loving yourself made it complete. Yes, that's right.
1: It gave me a new sense of peace really about being who i wanted to be that i didn't actually need to prove anything i'd lived for so many years feeling as if i got to prove that i was worth loving because fundamentally i wasn't worth loving so i had to prove it and realizing that that's not true is well it just changed my world really
0: yes and how does that world feel now for you angela Now I feel more excited about life
1: than I've ever felt before. I look back to when I was 30 and I feel so free and I feel free to be the me that I am. I feel free to do the things I want to do. I'm passionate about getting alongside other women and helping them just to let go of those negative beliefs that they've built up over the years and move forward with their lives. And it's I find myself drawn into conversations with people because the more you spend time doing this work, the more you, it's almost like you get this magnet pulling you just by something somebody says, just a little comment, a little look. It might be how they dress. It might be watching them at a meal where you will see them looking at other people's plates with envy in their eyes while they're eating a salad. And you just know that they're eating a salad because they're ashamed of their bodies and they're ashamed of admitting what they really want to eat. I mean it can be almost a double double edged sword, but it just means that you're aware and so you just listen out for any kind of clues so that you can well just I just wanted I just want to help really so I just find myself reaching out to those people. I feel like it's given me a drive to just touch the world with love that sounds a bit corny but that's what it is
0: no but that sounds beautiful that's exactly what so many of us should be called to do i mean that is that's almost like when you said that i thought of someone like the dalai lama i mean he talks a lot about that as well and that's in that same vein that we are called to feel compassion and lift others up
1: i mean women particularly we all know them don't we where they could be so down on
0: themselves Oh yeah, very hard. We're our own harshest critic. People can say all sorts of things to us, but we will always say it to ourselves three times worse. And yet, I'm sure Angela, like yourself and the women you work with, you'd never say that to your best friend. No, you wouldn't. And and
1: actually, sometimes that's one of the first ways to start being kind to yourself when you sort of realize that. And And I'll say, look, just imagine that you
0: are your best friend. What would you say to your best friend? And so in the shape-shift of syndrome, how do you work with women? Are you helping them to have these sorts of conversations?
1: Yes. I think one of the things that has been most exciting really for me in the last, particularly in the last year or so, as I was kind of moving away from the Slimming World sort of model was the realization that it's not counseling that these women need. If somebody doesn't love themselves, it's not years spent in therapy going over the past and and sort of sort of trying to unpick it. It's actually helping people to see that they can't change that. And so with shapeshifters, the first port of call is it is looking backwards and it's having the conversation and there's questions to ask and there's sort of just, I oh, will just tease out really how they feel about themselves and when that changed and if they have a, a memory of when it changed. Sometimes they don't, but quite often they do. And quite often it's related to a parent, one parent or another, or again, it might be bullying and so on in school and that kind of thing. But there's always a point when they began to be aware that in their head, they were second rate. So we do address it, we do look at it, and we do Acknowledge that it was wrong and that it should never have happened. My fundamental belief is that it's every child's birthright to be loved, cherished, nurtured and protected. And it's those four things that every single child in this world has a right to when they're born. But sadly, they don't always get it. So we look at those four words and we look back and we find the point when those things didn't happen. And then we look at it and we sort of face it head on, really, and acknowledge that that was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. Actually, it's their birthright was taken away. And it, sometimes it takes some people a bit longer than others. But we look at it and we say, Do you know what? We cannot change it. And neither can we understand it. Because we don't know what went on in those people's lives. And that was such a huge weight off my shoulders, knowing there's no point me blaming those people because I have no idea what was happening in their lives. For many of us, we don't know. We might know a little bit about our parents' history, but we don't know what their parents' history was and we don't know what their grandparents' history was and we don't know why they treated, you know, like for some people, it's because dad wanted a boy and they were a girl or it's because they're not as good as their sister. You know, there's something that's happened. So we look at that, we acknowledge it and then we start to forgive it. And it doesn't just happen. You can't just click your fingers and forgive something that you've carried with you for 30 or 40 years. But it's really hard. But what I find really helps is that we say it was never right. It should never have happened. So forgiving it is not saying it's okay and that it was okay that they did that. And that's really helpful. So understanding that forgiveness is not about saying what they did was okay. It's about saying I don't want to be affected by it anymore. And that's quite a change I just love watching somebody's face as they realize they do not have to be directed or controlled anymore by what somebody else did or said to them.
0: That is so liberating. I mean, it must be. It must be that freedom that you don't have to be, that other people's words don't determine how you behave. That's very, very powerful. Just pause there for a moment because that is a huge moment for so many people and particularly so many women and we're told not just by our family or by partners or by by social media by teachers by by women are very subjected to this
1: we are subjected to it and we are i mean it's old-fashioned to talk about the gentler sex and that kind of thing but there is a an emotional driver in many women that you know that who will take on board things in a different way from men. I mean, you can't be black and white about any of these things. It just, you know, we're, we're all so different, aren't we? But, and I've met men who I work with who similarly, you know, have been affected. It's not a sort of, again, not a one size fits all, but, but for anybody who has those and has grown up with negative self-image or in a marriage, it could be in a relationship, it could be an abusive partner who's taken away with our son. Lovely, gentle giant, the kindest person you would know who just he's able just to make people laugh if you if see somebody that's down he will just bring a smile but that was all robbed from him because he's an emotional you know he is an emotional person and if you're led by your emotions it's very easy to have taken on board and believed what other people have
0: said about you yeah that's very very true and as you know yourself that just took so long didn't it Angela to unwind yes maybe about decades decades yeah i was going to say it takes it takes decades to unwind that and we don't realize sometimes that it was something small sometimes and sometimes like the boyfriend i mean in the scheme of everything that happened in your life it was small but it was something that stuck wasn't it
1: i think it was because i'd gone to uni thinking okay new start I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure there's other people can identify with this. You know, you think, new start, now I can put all that behind me. And the bullying at school, now I'm with new people. They don't know me. They they won't know all about that. I can just be who I want to be. And then I, you know, started going out with this chap. And I was just on Cloud Cuckoo Land. On, you know, I was just like Cloud Nine, I mean. Sorry, not Cloud Cuckoo Land. <laughs> Although that was probably the same. But, yeah, just, you know, just walking on air eh? thinking, gosh, this, you know, is this lovely chap. and. Walking along holding hands, look through the park, you know, very romantic. And then he turns and says that to me. And I just like,
0: What? Flawed. Yeah. And the thing was, he thought he was paying me a compliment. He thought I'd be pleased. Yeah, because he didn't well, he didn't know your past like that either, did he? So no, sometimes. Angela working with women, if women were on this journey and they wanted to change their emotional eating. Where would they begin? What what are your first one, two, three sort of steps to changing this journey? The first thing is
1: sitting down and actually being honest with yourself about how you feel about yourself and even writing it down, I'm a great believer in using a pen and paper to express my emotions because if we just do it in our heads, A we feel silly. And B, we start wondering what time the tea should go on or, you know, whether the, the postman's come on, you know, just silly things come into our minds and distract us. So I'm a great believer getting a pen and paper out and just writing your story, really, talking, looking back to your, to your childhood, to times in your life when you can remember feeling differently about yourself. Um, and so that's a really good focal place to sort of start from, identifying for yourself when did you start using food as well as a sort of comfort as a coping mechanism? And most of us, if we look back, we'll remember. It could be when we were parent, you know, when Mum said, "Well, you know, if you eat your first course, you can have your pudding." Just little things like that. So going back and identifying in your life, and actually, what I'd explain it, it's like a mind map. So if you start at the beginning, just eating habits or something like that, I'll put it in the middle, and then just think about. When do you actually eat? When you're not hungry, I'm talking about. Because emotional eating, the definition of emotional eating is literally eating when you're not hungry. And a lot of people will assume that it's tied to things like feeling sad, feeling depressed, feeling angry, all the negative emotions, that's what they'll tie it to. But if you do a mind map of when you actually eat, you'll begin to realize if you're an emotional eater, there's so many other things in that spectrum. There's things like, feeling cold, um, feeling bored. It might be feeling happy. It might be as a reward. It might be as an incentive. It might be that you go to a party. You've had your meal before you go, but you eat. because course, the hostess or host has put out crisps around the room. You're not hungry at all, but they're there. Other people are eating them, and so you start eating them. And you're eating for a reason other than hunger. So identifying those things for yourself is the sort of next step. And then it's about thinking, okay, so that's what I do. What could I do instead? Is there anything I could do differently? And how can I do it? And then it's about being totally honest with yourself. So where my habit of chopping up carrots and putting them in the fridge, well, that works really well if you're living by willpower because your willpower will say, great, I'm going to have a carrot instead of a biscuit. (laughs) But actually... If I'm feeling rubbish, the last thing I was going to do is eat a carrot stick. It wouldn't matter how many carrot sticks I got chopped in that fridge, none of them would have got eaten. So it's got to be things that you actually like doing. It's got to be things that give you satisfaction. Equally, we know good me saying, well, I know what, you know, my friend sort of Fiona, she goes running. That's what helps her with stress. I'll go running. That will really, really help me. But on the day that I'm feeling rubbish... The last thing I'm going to do is get my trainers out.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Even though it would be good, it would be good for you in the sense that it does create, you know, endorphins and it gets you gets you pumped. If it's not what meets your emotional need, then you're never going to do it and enjoy it. You're going to be battling all the way through. Yeah, I mean, it's a habit that you can teach yourself to fall into, but.
1: These things can only change once the emotions have been sort of recognized and acknowledged. Because there are times where going for a walk or a run, I might choose to do that. Like I managed to share, and what for me, tackling first, and each person would have to, to, to think of this for themselves. But for me, the two that I could tackle first was boredom and tiredness. Because one of my triggers was if I was working and I began to fall asleep, that would be a trigger to go and get biscuits. Uh, you know, cup of coffee and biscuits. So I could change that to going and get an ice cold drink that was a sugar free drink or ice cold water. So I still had a drink, but it was cold. It would wake me up, of course, because it was cold, and I didn't want to dip a biscuit in it.
0: No. So you're breaking one of the habit patterns that went along with what you normally did. Yeah. So you're adapting. So, what, I think
1: one of the biggest mistakes people make is thinking that they've got to change their habits. And sometimes it's very difficult to actually change a habit, What what you can do is adapt it.
0: Yes. I mean, some of our habits are incredibly small, very subconscious, aren't they, Angela? So they're hard to change. And we've had them for a long time. The brain has worn that little pathway well and truly. Angela, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about the work that you're doing we have a a
1: facebook group which is called shapeshifters united and that's a really good place to start because already there's content in there um, there's some videos to watch and so on and you can also get in touch with me through that there's obviously live posts and i run courses through that facebook group we just did one actually all about it's called because that's my the title of how i eat now is called eating by instinct and it's that self-preservation instinct of caring enough about myself to eat properly. So I just, I just ran a course about that. And through there as well, obviously you can contact me personally, but you can also get to know other ladies. It is mostly ladies. There are some men in there too. But you just get to know other people who've been struggling yourself with that. I do have a website and that is the same. It's www.shapeshiftersacademy.com. It's just being updated at the moment though. So the Facebook group, Shapeshifters United would be, I would recommend going there
0: first. Wonderful. And that's what we will put in the show notes so that people can connect with you and gain so much from your experience and your wisdom. Angela, I want to thank you so much for coming and sharing your story a painful story but so honestly and openly and i think hearing your journey you know i hope that the listeners also hear that there's so much hope of being able to break through emotional eating and find a different way of not just eating but living and being absolutely that if if
1: i could just do you know what i just i just can't believe the difference it's made it has totally revolutionized how i think about myself and that means i can How you think about other people changes too, because you're not, i tell you one thing, when you're emotional eating, you're comparing yourself constantly. You're constantly looking at others and thinking, oh, if only I could be like that. And that goes out of the window. So absolutely, if I could just help one person that's listened today, that would be fantastic.
0: Yes. And I think you most definitely have. I mean, I've listened to it and I think, yes, so many people would without doubt, Angela, benefit from hearing and working with you. Thank you. Thank you.